Well, I'm very thankful to uh, Pastor Bob for the opportunity to uh, uh, preach God's Word this morning and um, want to say a hearty thank you, as you'll find in the bulletin from uh, Brenda and from me, for all the kindnesses over the last uh, five years and the fellowship and the opportunity to serve our Lord together. And uh, specifically, I want to thank um, those who helped out on Wednesday night. It was a bittersweet time, but a, a wonderful time. Um, enough friends who came along, but not too many that we weren't uh, so superficial in our highs and buys. But um, we are grateful for the support of Little Farms over these five years. Very grateful. And uh, look forward to continuing the fellowship and uh, the support, the uh, cooperation in the cause of the gospel. And looking back on Wednesday night, I do want to thank in particular Pastor Bob for all his work, for Elder Nick, for Elder Jack, for the two Dans on the booth, Dan Brink and Dan Rudy, and anybody else who, who was helping that night. We are indeed grateful. We come now to Psalm 46, as Pastor Bob asked me to um, preach this morning, I uh, came to this passage immediately because um, fear is a subject I've been thinking a lot about and praying a lot about over these years of going to different parts of the world, stepping outside a comfort zone and asking myself the question, uh, whether I've just learned theology or whether I am also applying theology in terms of what God calls me to do and by extension what God calls you to do. And um, this was especially pressing on my mind and my heart before uh, going to Pakistan. But as it turned out, going to Pakistan was less arduous than going to the Democratic Republic of Congo. But the question is abiding, not only for me, but for you as well. We come to worship week by week, but do we actually believe and appropriate the truths that we hear week by week? And I think, as we shall see this morning, we are living in a day when we need to be demonstrating that we are not simply learning truths intellectually week by week, but appropriating them, processing them, so that we might be bold in our day and in our place. So let us turn to God's Word, Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob 
is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to open your word. And we just pray that you'll give Dr. Tim everything he stands in need of this morning. And not only this morning, Father, but him and Brenda in the coming months with uh, what you have called him to, what you have called them to. And we pray, Father, that you will still our hearts, that we will know that you are God and that you will not only speak to our minds, but also to our hearts, Father, that uh, we will leave this place changed and uh, further equipped for use in your kingdom. All this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, alone we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Elder Ken. Thank you. Well, it needs no uh, announcement from me that we live in troubling times, and uh, although Brenda and I will be going beyond the west to the east, uh, 12-hour time zones away, we are mindful, even in the west now, that we live in difficult days, and our times of claiming a comfort zone are coming rapidly to an end. And so as we look at the scene in the West, and I'm thinking as a green card holder of life in America, but also as a British passport holder of life in the United Kingdom, these two nations so often tied together in history, at least recent history, I'm thinking of the situation spiritually where there is a widespread rejection of God, where rationalism, the claim to the autonomy of the human mind, and with it materialism, are now significantly, at least in theory, in the place of God, at least in the minds of many men and many women. Spiritually, we are adrift. And then I'm also thinking morally, and the two things go together, because once you reject God... You also reject his law, even though it's inscribed upon our very beings, and even though it's written in the word of God, which has never been vanquished. And yet we are living in days where there is the recreation of the law of God, which has become the law of man. And so amongst the powers that be, there is a refashioning of what is right and what is wrong. My mind goes back to the 1980s where there was a bishop of Durham who, denying the virgin birth, nevertheless said, well, what is really sinful is to drive to work in your car when you could be cycling on your bike. That's sin. And we see a whole array of alternative Ten Commandments today which bespeak the fact that man believes he's on the throne and that God has been dethroned so that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want, irrespective of the will of God revealed in the law of God. And what has been the result? We have social problems. We have great polarization. 
because the commonality that man has in possessing the law of God and the knowledge of God written upon our hearts has broken down into great fragmentation as, as in the days of judges, men and women do their own thing. There is folly on every hand. And so politically, that has a knock-on effect, especially in these days where now laws are coming forth which have no connection to the law of God. And thus we find ourselves in a situation as Christians where the law of the land is too often in conflict with the law of God. And we shall have, like the apostles of old, to have cause to say we ought rather to obey God than to obey man, and that will be trouble. So once so blessed, we are sensing that the judgments of God are in the air. And before coming to the psalm this morning, I want briefly to make three observations. The first observation is the reality that although the church at its weakest might endeavor to evade the troubles that are in the world, we don't actually escape the trouble. We are in the world, even if not of the world, and thus we are impacted by a fallen, chaotic, tumultuous world. This is nothing new. Look at verse 1 and verse 11 of this psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the reality. We live as the church in the midst of trouble. The second observation by way of introduction is the realization that fear in the midst of trouble is characteristic of the human predicament. Some deny this. How often this is the case in America. We can do it. Yes, we can. We are the land of the free, the home of the brave. Rightly lauding the fact that there is probably no nation which has spilt more blood in the cause of non-Americans than any other. And yet, my perspective, it's a personal perspective, but one as, uh, as one coming from the outside, is that in the nitty-gritty of American life, there is great fear, great anxiety, great blowing up of issues predicated on the fact that we are very fearful. It's a strange combination. Some deny they are afraid, some are ignorant, and I count myself as having spent the first half of my life not understanding how fear works, and that you can actually be very oblivious to fear. And then some, of course, are in panic, feeding off their fears. And even if you could construct a scenario in which everything fearful is taken away, such people would still find things to fear. You see, as fallen creatures, we are by nature without a relationship with God, and that makes insecurity an inevitability of the human experience. The third observation, then, is this, the responsibility. The church of Jesus Christ is called to trust in God. 
And in this day of trouble here in the West, and there's a day of trouble in the East, it differs, but it's troublesome there too. We have a wonderful opportunity to shine as those who trust in God. And as we come in the midst of a war in Ukraine, one of the positive things to come out of this war in Ukraine is to see the biggest country in Eastern Europe committed to prayer. And before this war broke out, we are told that Ukraine was the biggest sender of missionaries in Europe. And what have we seen reported by American news agencies, British news agencies? You've seen Ukrainian people faced with the onset of a Russian invasion, praying under highways, lifting up their hands to God, calling upon his name for the salvation of the nation. And so we are reminded of the responsibility that we have in our time, our place, to shine in the midst of trouble. That in these troublous times, we of all people ought to be the go-to people to know how we may have peace how we may have tranquility in the midst of the storm around us. And so our rise to fearlessness, I put it to us, largely depends on our use of these last days of comfort and peace to cultivate dependence upon God. We must process the faith and not simply accept it propositionally. And so one of my final challenges to you, as I contemplate going with Brenda to a very different place, is that we at Little Farms, Brenda and I have to apply this in Malaysia, will rise to the challenge of realizing that the Christian faith is not about the prolonging of our comfort. It is about exemplifying the peace of God in the midst of the troubles of the world so that other people may come to like faith in the Lord Jesus. And so Psalm 46 is a great example of this. It is, says Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a song of holy confidence. And its four characteristics here help us to cultivate this holy confidence, that we might be bold, confident in our faith, notwithstanding the troubles that have already come and those which are on the horizon. The first characteristic, the song is a profession, verse 1. The psalmist focuses not chiefly on his troubles but on God because God is the one who makes the troubles manageable. And so the psalmist here professes, first of all, the existence of God. God, it's the first word of the psalm in Hebrew and in the English here. God, that is consistent with Scripture. God is assumed throughout the psalm just as he is assumed throughout the Scripture. And so in trouble, the name Elohim, which is the Hebrew word here, affords us great confidence. It's the first name given for God in Genesis, depicting him as the creator, the sustainer, 
the judge of all the earth. And so what does the psalmist teach us right off the bat? He teaches us that the church does not abandon God in trouble, but runs to God. We come together to seek God, to call upon His name, to trust in God, to draw from God, the great creator, the sustainer of all things. Isn't this why this psalm was so important to Martin Luther? In the midst of the heady days of the Reformation where they could be burned at the stake? When he put his neck above the trenches and was fired out from all angles for proclaiming Christ alone as the way of salvation, for proclaiming that salvation is by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus? When things got painful, he would say to his colleague Philip Melanchthon, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. So the psalmist here professes God's existence. Secondly, he professes God's attributes. God is a very present help in trouble. God is not only powerful, he is also ever-present. He has neither died since the psalmist wrote this song, nor has he run away from his people. God, we rejoice to know, is not a fair-weather God. Rather, he rises to our troubles, granting us sightings of his presence. Literally, the psalm says, God is well-proved help in trouble. His sightings prove the fact that he is with his people. Thirdly, the psalmist professes God's covenant. God, who is well-proved help in trouble, is then our refuge and our strength. We run to God, not only because He's powerful and ever-present, but because He is passionate about His people. He opens Himself up to those running to Him. He loves us and welcomes being our defense. I thank you for the prayers for my mother of late. When I look back upon my mother's life, this is one of the things that I remember her for. My mum is not uh, touchy-feely. Uh, many of the older generation growing up in the British uh, Isles are not that way. They went through the blitz of the Second World War. They are not sentimental. They know what it is to live with hardship. I remember my mother when we were young or when we'd outgrown our toys, putting them all in the attic just in case another depression came or another war came for the grandchildren. It was always for the grandchildren. But one of the things I remember my mother for is the fact that whenever I was in trouble, she would rise to the occasion. I remember once being falsely accused of stealing bread from a shop. She was straight on the phone to the shop manager explaining the situation. And when recently we were back in the United Kingdom and I was sorting through 30 years of memorabilia, I found this letter which I'd never seen before, a letter from my mother rising to the occasion to be my refuge and my strength. There was something of God in that. And so it is here, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Trouble reveals 
whether we trust in God. And one of the reasons why I've been thinking about this whole notion of fear is that I do not find in myself what I've found sometimes in pastoral work, and the elders here can speak the same, I'm sure, that trouble may come to one household and you think this family is strong in their faith, sturdy in their faith, they will withstand the onslaught of the troubles, and yet they faint in the day of adversity. And another family you think are very brittle, and they will fall apart at the seams. And suddenly, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as trouble comes to that family that you thought from the outside were weak in faith, they rise to the challenge, they blossom in trouble. And we are seeing some of that with some of our dear church family who are in trouble at this time. The second characteristic, verses 2 to 3, the song is a proclamation. On the basis of what the psalmist professes, namely the knowledge of God's power, his presence and his passion for his people, the psalmist loudly and repeatedly proclaims that no matter what happens to him, However bad things get, he will not fear. Therefore, we will not fear. And so he, he, to make the point, envisions a natural disaster. Probably if you're in the midst of one, it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Phase one, the earth gives way. He's not talking here about the earth losing its sense of gravity and plummeting through the cosmos. He's talking about an earthquake, a seismic earthquake, or as we are now more familiar with, a sinkhole opening up. The psalmist refers then to the ground giving way under our feet. And he says, should that happen, he will not fear. You know, one of my memorable, uh, uh, or one of my vivid memories from growing up in Wales was hearing on the radio one day in our town of a sinkhole opening up in the main road running through the town. You see, what had happened was in the Industrial Revolution, they had built many mines, but they didn't think ahead of time to plan where the mines were. It was before town planning and all that. And so they hadn't mapped where all the shafts were. And in the middle of the night, one gave way. And then another appeared, which was under the corner of my friend's house. And on another occasion, a man was walking his dog. And sadly, the dog fell 700 feet down a shaft. They rapidly had to find out where all these shafts were, and people were afraid, thinking, oh, the ground's going to give way under me. And the psalmist here says, listen, if the ground gives way under my feet, I will not be afraid. And then phase two, again verse two, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, the earthquake or sinkhole dislodges what was once permanent. The landscape is changed irremediably, and things are not the same. And he says, despite the new normal, the psalmist will not 
be afraid. So evidence of this in Goma and Lake Kivu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Before going there, stayed in this compound. Ten years before, there'd been a volcano in the region. And when I went down to the side of the lake, the compound was on the lake, and looked at the walls, they looked different. And when I looked at the walls, what I found was that the walls were made of volcanic lava, dried volcanic lava. And they warned me, don't swim in the lake. You will die because of the chemicals from the volcano. I couldn't see the volcano. It was about 10, 15 miles away. But you see what had happened. The mountain had slidden. The lava had come all these miles down to the lake. They knew what it was to have the ground removed from under them. And the volcano has hit again since it's been there. Phase 3, verse 3. Though its waters roar and foam. The psalmist now depicts the mountains crashing into the sea. The lava coming down, as it were. And the riptides and the waves created by the mountains sliding into the sea. Over recent years, we've become aware of tsunamis, have we not? The danger of tsunami is not the height of the wave, but coming at you at 300 to 500 miles an hour. And what does the psalmist say? Supposing there's a tsunami, I will not fear. We will not fear. We're in God's hands. Phase four. The trembling of the surrounding mountains. Though its waters roam and fall, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist then writes of the knock-on effect of other removables. On other removables, we shall not fear. Now, what's the application here? Is this just idle talk? Is this just bravado, carnal banter? We can do it. Yes, we can. No. What the psalmist is doing is giving a psalm to the choir master and the sons of Korah so that the people of God may proclaim truth to themselves. And I think this is somewhat of the disconnect when we are afraid. We have the theology, but it's the processing of the theology so that we are not simply in reactive mode. Have you heard the latest of what the government is doing? Have you heard the latest that's happening in the nation? Reaction, reaction, reaction. No, Pastor Bob comes and he preaches his sermons so that we, possessed by the Spirit of God, can process the truth of God and say, how am I going to use this truth of a great God, a great gospel, who's creating a great church to stand firm, to be unafraid, in the day in which we live. I think John Newton sums this up. The hymn, I don't believe, is in our hymnal, but listen to it. He's proactive, not reactive. Be gone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform with Christ in the vessel I smile at the storm. Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. Though cisterns be broken and creatures all fail, the word he has spoken shall surely prevail. 
His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. Why should I complain of want or distress, temptation or pain? He told me no less. The heirs of salvation I know from his word through much tribulation must follow the, follow the Lord. Now, what is John Newton doing? He's doing exactly the same thing that the psalmist is doing. He's taking hold of the truth about God's existence, about God's attributes, about God's covenant. And he's saying, this must be applied theology. And so I'm going to take hold of these truths, these wonderful truths. And in the midst of the trouble in which I find myself, I'm going to apply this theology so that I will not be afraid. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones meant when he said half our troubles are because we listen to ourselves too much and preach to ourselves too little. So the psalmist proclaims truth amongst the people of God. And an extension of that, truth is proclaimed to the church. That's why the psalmist has given his composition to the choir master. The sons of Korah, as they sing out in the temple... Hold each other to account. We will not fear. We will not fear. Have you ever thought about him singing in that way? When we sing some of the great affirmations of biblical truth, we're not simply singing praise to God. First and foremost, we're doing that, but we're also holding one another to account. When we say, we will not fear, in the assembly of God's people... And then we find ourselves during the week afraid, timid, panicking. What are we doing? We are denying what we sung on the Lord's day. And so part of the role of hymn singing or psalm singing is to hold one another to account. We affirmed in the assembly of God's people, we will not be afraid. And therefore, I should not be afraid. The third characteristic, verses 4 to 7. The song is a perception. Our determination to be fearless amid trouble is what sets the man or woman of faith apart from the world. And so the psalmist now paints the contrast. First, the experience of the church, verses 4 to 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. He's saying that by God's grace, we can be fearless amid trouble. Not only are we anchored by God's existence, God's attributes, God's covenant. We experience blessings from God of which the world knows nothing. The psalmist mentions two of them, the peace of God, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. All the while the world is in turmoil, confusion. The church is a great city inhabited by God and his people. The Spirit flows through the church, granting gladness to God's people. This is what Frances Ridley Havergal was writing about when she penned the hymn, Like a river, glorious is God's perfect peace. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. 
That's the one blessing, the peace of God. Second blessing, the end of verse 4 and verse 5, the presence of God. Because God is amid the city, the city shall not be moved. The holy habitation of the Most High, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Now, of course, we've already said that the church does not evade the troubles that are found in the world. But we have this assurance that God always sustains His church. She'll never be vanquished. You know, this had a great impact on my own thinking, if I may testify personally. When it dawned on me that of all the institutions on the earth, the church will never go out of existence. Oh, we may go through patches of dryness. We may sing about longing for the churches to be full as we see church attendance decimated in the West. But all the while this is happening, thousands and millions of people are coming to faith in different parts of the world, and the church is springing up there even in the midst of persecution. And so we can rest. One thing we do not have to worry about is that the church will always be here. Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age, said the Lord Jesus. And so our peace in days of trouble depends on us dwelling within the city, knowing and practicing the presence of God, and benefiting from His Spirit. This river that runs through the holy city of God, enough to replenish all the people of God. So that's the experience of the church, but then the experience of the world. What's happening outside the city? Verses 6 to 7. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. And so the trembling of the mountains, which we've already touched on, bespeaks the fact that the nations are raging, the kingdoms are tottering, the earth is melting. They are setting themselves up against God, the very God who can secure them in the day of trouble. I do believe we're witnessing some of this in our own day. Nations raging against God, squelching, opinions rooted in God's law, kingdoms tottering, and that includes the United States, losing its standing in the world. That's been one of the eye-opening experiences of traveling to different parts of the world, just how rapidly the U.S. is losing its standing, but we don't see it. More and more countries turning away from the dollar to the yen. Going through Africa years ago and then returning to Africa and seeing over copper mines, Chinese signs. Packing up our home, nothing new here. Made in China, made in China, made in China, made in China. Kingdoms tottering, the earth melting, pandemic, climate change panic. Movers and shakers in our world today are pulling out all the stops. Why? Well, they are genuinely afraid. But part of the reason they are afraid is that they are their own security, so they perceive it. If you have rejected God... 
and you have bought into irrationality and you've bought into materialism, then you better be prepared to secure your own security because the God whom you rejected cannot do it so they believe or will not do it or he doesn't exist. So we have to secure our future. We have to. We have to. No, I'm not saying that the Christian church doesn't have responsibility in this world. There's human responsibility as well as divine sovereignty. But we run to God and we say, it's on his schedule. It's on his timetable. He is our security. And so we come to the fourth characteristic. The song is a persuasion, verses 8 to 11. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Full of holy confidence, we rise above the troubles. You see, this is what happens when the church is as panicked as the world. We withdraw into ourselves. We only speak amongst ourselves. We lament amongst ourselves. We complain amongst ourselves. This isn't what the psalmist has in mind. He says, come, behold the works of the Lord. He's saying, in effect, that if we can reach that point by drawing from the God whose spirit is like a river running through the church, then what happens? We rise above the troubles. We are the go-to people in the midst of the world's troubles. And when they come to us, and preferably we first go to them, we say, come, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the turmoil, behold the works of the Lord. So the very God the nations hate, says the psalmist, is the God who offers to be their refuge and strength too. Note then the psalmist plea to the nations in the day of trouble. The first plea, verse 8, what the Lord has brought. The nations need to know that God actively forewarns us against going our own way. Troubles can be his intermediate judgments, forewarning of a final judgment to come. So Elohim seeks to turn the nations to himself while this day of grace lasts. Now we have to ask ourselves, now it's reported, and I'm not going to go into the statistics or verifying them, that a million are dead in the United States from COVID, why there's been so little turning to God? Well, we could say the world is so steeped in its rationalism, the world is so steeped in its materialism that it is basically immune to the fear of God and to the judgments of God that are in the earth. But could it not also be that we have fallen short and have been practical deists in the way in which we have talked about COVID? What is deism? We've been seeing it in Sunday school. Deism is the belief that God founded the earth and then left it to its own devices. And we can talk about COVID as if that's the case, as if COVID has come, but God isn't in the picture. But not the psalmist here. Listen to what he says. He has brought desolations on the earth. Could it not be? And should it not be part of our message to say to a world in the midst of a pandemic that God is bringing the desolations to us, whether it be COVID, whether it be the war in Ukraine, whatever it might be, 
because he in his severe mercy is calling to the nations in this day of grace to return to him. And if God is doing that, we cannot afford to be short or cutting corners on the message that the psalmist gives us here to speak. Where is our imploring God for the lost? Second plea, what the Lord has broken, verse 9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The psalmist calls men and women to look at history. Every time nations and kingdoms have gone against God, they lose. He reminds us that today's social progressivism and its irrationality is not only a great folly, it is destined for defeat. So instead of imprisonment in fear, the church, blessed by the strength of the Lord, needs to go forth as victors. We proclaim God and manifest his grace to those broken in their sins by the judgments that are in the earth. And then thirdly, what the Lord has beckoned, verses 10 to 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God wants all to pay attention. Amid the trouble and turmoil, God calls us to desist from being frantic. Be still and know that I am God. Well, what do we contemplate when we contemplate that God is indeed God? Well, the first thing is that he will be exalted. How is God going to be exalted amongst the nations? God is going to be exalted amongst the nations either by coming in reviving power, which he has done so often in the history of the world, or by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. One way or the other, he's going to be exalted amongst the nations. And when you look at the history of the church, Revival should not supplant our interest and our yearning for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but God revives his people so that the church is strengthened, so that the church is sustained until Jesus Christ returns in power and in glory. Just as God's judgments are intermediate judgments before the final judgment to come, so revival is an intermediate display of God's great mercy and compassion to bring in his people before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is for the nations to return to God. It is for the nations to submit to him. And one of the things that God can use for that to happen is for God's people to be still and to know that God is God in the midst of the troubles. Let me ask you as I ask myself, when we are beset by trouble, is there a discernible difference between my reaction to trouble and my unconverted neighbor's reaction to trouble? There should be a massive, massive distinction between the way the unbeliever responds in the flesh to trouble and the way in which I respond in the spirit to trouble. And then... We can be still because God's people can be assured, verse 11, 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Those belonging to God through faith and repentance have the confidence that the Lord, and note, his heavenly host, are with us. Remember how the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans in the midst of being sacrificed for Nero's garden parties. If God be for us, who can be against us? And so what is the psalmist wanting from us? He wants us to shed our fears. And if I never come back to America, I have many blessings here from 22 years. But if I were never to come back to America, the one thing I would yearn, well, several things I would yearn for the Lord's people, is that we would stop treating fear as a virtue. It's not. It's an affront to God. When you see God's existence, God ever-present to help his people, God as our refuge and our strength, God who in Christ has taken away our condemnation, what have we to fear? And so as we close this morning, I ask two questions, especially in light of the Lord's Supper. Have we taken refuge in God? Have we come to him in our sins, insecurities, fears? Or are we still holding out? Let me ask you if you yet to profess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Why would you reject God as your refuge and your strength for life? Why would you continue under condemnation and not come out from under condemnation into the refuge and security of God in Jesus Christ? Why would you not? Christ has come that we may know God's heart for those taking refuge in him. Remember what Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 6, even when we were weak, God sent his son to die for us. The second question, for those of us who have professed our faith, are we living out of our refuge? If God declares us no longer condemned, we really have nothing left to fear. Oh yes, there's the fear of God, a reverential awe for God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this slavish fear which besets the world in its turmoil and its raging, the kingdoms tottering, the earth melting. If we have a prospect of appearing before God and to know God saying, you can come into heaven because the blood of my son has covered your sins, has turned away my wrath against you, that the throne of my judgment has been transformed by my ordination through the work of Christ from a throne of judgment into a throne of grace. If that is true of me, and if that is true of you, then what business do we have being afraid. If we had more fear of God, less fear of man, then brought out from under condemnation, we would live fearless lives. You know, when Brenda and I first met, one of the 
texts that she loved and spoke to me so often. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And so as we come to communion this morning, we rejoice that this is a symbol taken in faith, whereby we declare, we proclaim, we have nothing left to fear. We will not fear. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We are challenged by it to the core of our beings. And we pray that we would not live as the world in upheaval and in panic or in denial, but we would publicly own you to be our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Help us then as we partake of the Lord's Supper to know your presence and to know our faith strengthened as we behold what Christ has gone through for us. Thank you that he's come to destroy the works of the evil one. And we are glad that he has not only died for us, but is raised again for us. So help us to come together, to hold one another to account, that we might live boldly before you by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.